Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Good to have you all here today. I talked with a friend this week who gave me his philosophy of buying Christmas presents. He, uh, he uh, said, I buy one really nice thing for each of my kids, and he gave me some examples, and they were pretty nice things. And then, you know, maybe a few little things to, on, for Christmas uh, to open up. And I always buy those things on Christmas Eve. He said, I go to the mall on Christmas Eve so I can see the rest of the men in Whatcom County. <laughs> he said, no joke, you go to the mall. And it's, it's, uh, I forget the, the figure he threw out there, you know, it's three quarters men or whatever. Some things are quite predictable at Christmas time. Even what Bible texts we will read and study. But today we're going to break out of that mold and spend some time in one of the most wonderful passages of Scripture that talks about Jesus Christ. And really, if, if, if we were to make a movie, we would call this a prequel to the Christmas story. Uh, we, we know a lot about Christ coming in the manger and so on, but this text from Philippians 2 really tells us what went into Christ coming for us on that first Christmas day. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." What was the existence of Jesus before he entered the world? It's, it's important for us to start before he came. Uh, some people who, who are well-meaning and who actually believe in Christ don't understand that his existence is eternal. And so we want to think about the eternal existence of Christ before he took on a, a human existence as well. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. In our normal use, English usage of the word form, it usually means something other than the real thing, sort of like a mold from which other things come. Uh, when we build a building, we put down pieces of, of plywood or they have foam and all kinds of things now that's called the cement form, and the cement goes in the middle and when we think about what's the real thing and what's the other thing, we think of the cement as the real thing and the outsides as just, just something to hold it together until it's done. Or we call a, a piece of paper a form. The real thing is the content that is in it, not the, not the piece of paper or increasingly the computer form that is there. But that's not what this word means. In fact, it's the opposite of what this word means in Greek. The form means the essential, the essential uh, identity of something. It's the outside 
which only can come from the inside. Jesus was on the outside like God because on the inside he was God, would be one way to put it. The outward expression of the inward reality. This familiar passage from the Gospel of John helps us to understand that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, this is talking about Christ being equal with God, being part of God, before he came and took on flesh. And I want to just stop and just take a little review for some of us, but it may be new for some of you, and talk about the triunity of God. Sometimes we use the word trinity. The word triunity has come into vogue in recent days, and so I'm going to use that one. And this is an ancient illustration, actually, that's been developed of the, of the trinity. And you understand there's, there, there are three geometric patterns a person could see, or actually more than three, but they're all intertwined, and that's on purpose. When we think of the triunity of God, the three persons in one together, we begin with the Father, God the Father. Then we go to God the Son. Then we go to God the Holy Spirit. And what we understand is this, there is one divine nature, in the Old Testament, as God begins to reveal himself, he says, he says, the Lord your God is one. But even before he says that, in the very first, the, the second chapter of Genesis, he says, let us make man in our image. We get a clue in the very beginning of the Bible about the the triunity of God, the fact that there are three persons with one nature together. And yet they have three distinct roles. And so we read of the Father in our way of thinking as being the person in charge, the person who develops a plan. We see Jesus Christ, who we will talk primarily about today, as the person of the Godhead who came and took on a human nature in addition to the divine nature. And we see the Holy Spirit being active in different ways, all the way from creation down to our existence today. And he uh, fills us and empowers us and guides us and gifts us for ministry. And so all three of them are active, but in different ways. When we think about Jesus Christ and his connection and his part of the triunity, uh, a verse like this really says it well, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, of God's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When we read about Jesus Christ being the express image of God, we begin to understand what his existence was before he came and in his coming. So in Philippians 2, it says he had the form of God. He had the nature of God. And what was his existence like before he took on the nature of a man in addition to the nature of a God? What was his existence like? What was his life like? 
Well, first of all, he was the creator and sustainer of the world. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, there is not a conflict here with those scriptures who would talk about God being the creator because we understand that all three persons of the Godhead work together. We would perhaps understand it this way, that God created the plan and Christ carried it out. And the Holy Spirit had a part as well. He is before or he is more important than all things and in him all things hold together. I don't know if you read the articles in the paper that have a scientific bent, but there's been a lot of talk recently about what's going on um, over in, uh, I can't remember if this was from the, uh, from the particle accelerator in Europe or from one here in the United States, but they're searching for the God particle. They call it that. The proper name is the Hicks, Hicks boson. They believe there is a particle that they have not yet discovered, which causes all the other particles to have certain properties. In particular, forgive the science lesson for those of you that got an F in science. In particular, we know that in, in, in the molecules, there are protons and neutrons clinging together like this with electrons running around. And the scientists are saying, why? Why? Why do they hold together? Why is it so predictable? Why do things always work the same way? And they have theorized that there is a particle, not a neutron, not a proton, not an electron. There's something else they haven't discovered yet. And this particle is called the God particle because it's the thing that makes everything work. Okay? He holds all things together in him All things consist. If you want to know why that all works, it's because Jesus Christ has the whole universe in his hand. And someday when the scripture says he's going to burn up this world with fire, do you know how he's going to do it? Just like that. All he has to do is let go, and all those things just go whoosh. Jesus Christ was the creator and sustainer of the world before he was the baby in the manger. Number two, Jesus had a magnificent appearance. Now, we're on some some challenging theological ground here today. So I hope you'll listen. I hope you'll listen carefully and try try to sort this out with everything else you know from the Scripture. When I talk about the appearance of God, I'm getting on slippery ground, right? Because God is a... Spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so if God is a spirit, how can he have an appearance? I'm not sure. But I know he has one. And I think one of the best examples of it that we're commonly aware of would be from the Christmas story when it says the glory of the Lord shone all around the shepherds. And what was their response? They were sore afraid, as the King James says. What is the glory of God? Well, it has to do with his nature and his perfection, but it also seems to be demonstrated outward in a way that humans would be able to perceive if we were spiritually able to handle it. 
from the book of Exodus, we read this. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken of, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Now notice that God doesn't say there is no such thing. There is no visible appearance. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. I will make my goodness, that's my character, my nature, to pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now at that point in time, Jesus Christ had not died for sins. Moses' sins were not forgiven. They were covered by sacrifice. And so Moses was not prepared to see God face to face. We are. And Moses is now too since Christ has died. Because Romans 3 says when Christ died, the sins past were forgiven as well as the sins future. That included Moses that were just covered by sacrifice. So Moses got to see God's face eventually. But right now, he says, you can't see me and live. But the Lord said, here is a place by me. And you stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back but not my face. Now, Again, folks, I know we're on some theologically challenging ground because God doesn't have a back or a front. He's a spirit. And yet what he's trying to communicate to us is, he says, my appearance is so magnificent, you can't stand to see it, but I'm going to let you see, and you'll see here. Whoops. I didn't copy the rest of the scripture, but what it says is, I'm going to pass by, and then I will take my hand away. You will see my back, but not my face. And so he put Moses in a place where the rocks were there and his hand was there and God went by. And what God actually saw was the afterglow of God. The impact that God had on everything around Moses. The glory of God lit it up like a candle and Moses saw it. And the result was when Moses went down the, when Moses went down the hill that his face was shining so bright they couldn't stand to look at him. Here's what I want you to get a hold of today. That's what Jesus looked like before the manger. He had that magnificent, glorious appearance that comes from being God. Some, we can't fully appreciate it or understand it, but we can, we can imagine it. Thirdly, Jesus received worship. As God, he received worship from 1 Kings. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, it licked up the water that was in the trench. You know this story. It's Elijah with the prophets of, of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they had this challenge between the two of them. And, and after the prophets of Baal failed to get their God to, to bring fire to the sacrifice, Elijah said, you are God. And God went, boom. 
Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And Jesus was in heaven being worshipped with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. What we've just looked at is a snapshot of the existence and experience of Christ before he entered our world. And we know that in regard to the essential nature of Christ, this is the truth. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The scripture here doesn't mean that God always works the same way in our world. It means that Jesus, as to his nature, as to his character, is always the same. And so, what changed What changed when Jesus entered our world? Because Jesus didn't come into the manger. Forgive me if I burst your bubble. He did not come into the manger with a glow about his head. He was a baby who soiled his diaper and called out for his mama to feed him. That seems like a pretty long leap from being in heaven with the magnificent display of the glory, hearing people saying, you are God, you are God. What changed? Look at Philippians chapter 2, please. Who, being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery, and we'll come back to that phrase in a minute, to be equal with God, but here's what he did. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form, the same word as form of God. He took on the very nature of a bond servant and came in the likeness of men. He took on a human nature. That's what changed He didn't stop being God. He didn't let go of his divine nature. He took on a human nature together. And for a time, put aside the absolute expression of being divine. From Hebrews 2, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory, that comes later, and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Jesus took on a human nature. He was made lower than the angels. Now think about it, folks. What I really want you to try to grasp today is the, is the, is the distance that Christ had to travel from the glory of heaven to taking on a human nature. And in that, that as a human being, he's lower in terms of power and importance than the angels. The angels he created, and yet he's taken on a human nature which is lower than that. What changed when Jesus entered our world? He had no visible wealth. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that somebody said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Jesus lived in poverty. He was born in a barn and buried in a borrowed tomb. He relied on the generosity of strangers for food and shelter. He had no visible wealth. He lived in the human nature. He didn't just take on a human nature and then somehow secretly have all kinds of special things for himself. As as a human being, as a divine human being, he had parents to obey. Think about that. Parents to obey. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Those of you who are still kids at home know how hard it is to obey your parents sometimes. You know how hard it is when you want one thing and they want another thing. Can you imagine being sinlessly perfect and having to obey parents who were not sinlessly perfect? What kind of challenge would that be? He lived in his human nature. He had parents to obey. He had temptations to resist. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted so that we could see his perfection. There was no doubt about his perfection. He didn't need to prove himself to himself. He needed to demonstrate his goodness to us. He had fatigue to endure. John 46 talks about him being wearied from his journey. I I don't know if we fully appreciate the humanness of Christ. That when he walked four miles as he did, he got tired. He had hunger to to experience. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. I'm telling you what, I always have time to eat. I think ahead about having time to eat. Now, I understand there are some people who will say, I I got so busy I forgot to eat. I understand that. I understand people say that. I don't understand what goes on with you. (laughs) But Jesus really was too busy to eat sometimes, and he was hungry. We know he was hungry after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil himself before his ministry began. But perhaps worse than some of these physical challenges is this. He served in infamy and rejection. Now the word infamy is based on the word famous. To be famous is to be well-known. To be infamous is to be well-known for things that not everybody likes. You know, uh, I am infamous in my circle of pastor friends for my laughter. We will go to a pastor's and wives retreat and somebody will say, oh, I knew you were here, I could hear you laughing up front. And I think, yeah. And they're probably thinking, Lunsford, you need to tone it down a little bit, you know. I'm infamous for that. Jesus Christ was infamous And he was rejected. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Think about that. You, (laughs) 
You created it. And people come along and treat you like nothing. Have you ever... Uh, yeah, you know, I had a I had a friend in in my church in Seattle who um, was an electrical designer, and we'd drive by a building. And he'd go, "Yeah, I did the electrical in that building, you know, or I, I designed it, or whatever it was, you know." And people have pride in what they do. Jesus Christ created the world, and yet when he came into the world, they went, "Who are you?" They didn't know him. He came to his own. To his own people, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Another scripture says, Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Galilee was, was sort of like the bottom of the social scale of Israel. You know, pick your own place. I won't name one, so I won't insult anybody today, but... There are places that we think, oh, that's a low place, and this place, that's a high place, you know. Jesus didn't come from this place. He came from this one down here. And so people said, oh, he can't be anything because of that. From John 4, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. You're demon-possessed. That's how he was regarded. Even his brothers did not believe in him. And this is talking about his human brothers. Now, we would properly call them stepbrothers because they were from Mary and Joseph, not from Mary and the Holy Spirit like he was. His own brothers who grew up with him, who knew they had to know how sinless he was because he had to have never done anything wrong. How does that work between siblings? But they didn't believe him, not at first. And then, of course, the ultimate thing that changed for Jesus was he suffered and died. He suffered and died. From Hebrews chapter 2, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be human that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a satisfaction of a payment for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus came into our world, took on a human nature. He didn't stop being divine, but he took on human nature. He limited the expression of his divine nature, and he suffered all kinds of physical and, and personal uh, hurts and difficulties, and then he died. And he died in a way worse than most people die. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There was a specific curse in the Old Testament about those who, hang, who, who are lifted up and hang in their dying. And uh, Jesus suffered that worst death of all. One of the worst living conditions that I've ever witnessed wasn't in a third world jungle or a refugee camp, but in King County. 
I was called to a home by the fire department in which the air was so thick with the smell of the five animals that lived there, I could taste it when I breathed. There were large holes in the ceiling through which I could see the roof. Most of the lights didn't work. The only source of heat in the whole house was the oven of the electric cooking range. There was no phone and only one chair to sit on that I could see. And there was a man who was deathly ill. And I remember thinking, wow, how can you live here? That's tough. What do you suppose it was like for Jesus to leave the glory of heaven and take on a limited human body, a human nature, and walk through 33 years of hunger and fatigue and frustration and insult, and then finally to be physically tortured and killed? How do those two things compare? Unbelievable. But Philippians 2 also tells us why. Why did Jesus do this? And it's locked up in this little phrase in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now this is the New King James Version. Um, The word grasped is the word used in the NIV. It's still hard to for us to understand the full meaning, but it, but it is the word which actually does mean to steal something. And, and, and the idea of theft uh, that's behind it is, is, is like, here's a pretty thing, I want it, and so I will take it, even though I'm putting myself in danger to get it, it's so valuable to me either because of the object itself or the money that I can get for it or what I can buy for my life that, that, that I'm going to just put it all right there. I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to take this and, and I'm, and, and I'm going to steal this thing. Now, what the scripture says about Jesus is that he looked at he looked at, his, at the expression of his divinity, at the magnificence of the glory that Moses couldn't even look at, 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 at the worship received from human beings, at the, at the exhibit of, of his power of creation. He looked at all of that and he said, you know what? That's not something that I have to hang on to at all costs. I can let go of that and come to earth and take on a human nature because these people are going to go to hell if I don't do it. His The expression of his divinity was not a treasure to be grasped at all costs. He let go. That's what it says. It says he he emptied himself. Verse 7, he he made himself of no reputation or he, he emptied himself. Now, he didn't stop being God, but he stopped having the magnificence of the experience and expression of God that we talked about from heaven. 
One commentator put it this way, he did not consider the fact of being equal to God to be a prize to be selfishly grasped. We might understand this better if we use the word rights. As Jesus had the right to exist as God because he was God. He had the right to worship. He had the right to to manifest the power of God. He gave up his rights for us. I went to Costco this week to have lunch and look for a gift for my wife. And uh, after I had lunch and was surprised that it wasn't as busy as I expected, I circled around for the, what was I after? Free samples, of course. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) Lunch is is like the entree, and the free samples are like the the cheese platter after dinner, you know, in a five-course meal, you know, whatever. So I circled around for the uh, for the freebies, and uh, I you know on one of them they were serving up meatballs dipped into marinara sauce, and so uh, you know they cut that meatball in half and stick a little toothpick in there, and I thought, well that looks good, and and uh, they didn't have any. They were in the process of getting them out. You you know the drill, and uh, so I thought I got nowhere to be. I'm waiting for that meatball. I'm not going anywhere. So the, uh, the, 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 worker lady, the worker lady is here, and I'm on this side, and there's a customer right there, right, right behind her. And the customer is, this other customer is also waiting for the meatball. And, uh, you know, the, the workers there can be a little particular about their methodology. And apparently they have certain rules. They're supposed to put their little food on a, on a tray and then set the whole tray out there and, you know, they're clean and unclean and you can't touch and all that. And so she's putting the things out there and, and, and then she had a dirty paper off of one of those trays to put in the garbage right here. But the, this customer was right next to her. And she's trying to get this paper into the garbage and the customer is going for the meatball. <laughs> and the worker, having not been trained that well, said... Excuse me? And the lady, perhaps being from a different culture, thought, I'm going for the meatball. And the worker said, Excuse me? And kind of pushed by and put her paper in the garbage. And I just stood back and watched the show. (laughs) And then the customer walked off in a harump without a meatball. But I got one. (laughs) And I got this great sermon illustration, too. You see, the worker, to some extent, had a right to do their job. And the customer had a right to the food. And between the two of them, they had a tug-of-war. Or a shoving mat. Kind of a gentle shoving. You know, one of those jobs. And the worker won. Jesus had rights. But he chose, he chose not to win. 
he chose to let go and say, I will come and take on a human nature. I will suffer the indignity of living a human life, and I will suffer the ultimate indignity of dying on the cross. Jesus had a right to everything we've been talking about. He had a right to be worshipped. He had the right to appear in magnificence, such magnificence that sinful human beings could not stand to look at him. He had the right to control the world that he created. He was and is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. And he expressed those attributes freely in creation and in the control of the universe. But in large part, he left the expression of being God behind and came into our world because he loved us more than he loved himself. He laid down his life on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood to pay for our sins. But before any of that could happen, he had to let go of glory and come to be our Savior. Now how should we respond to that? Look at Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, Therefore, God, because he did all of this and became obedient to the point of death, verse 8, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bowing the knee. In our American culture, we don't bow to one another except when we're fooling around. Uh, on TV this week, I saw pictures of the uh, Queen of England, and when people meet her, apparently the proper etiquette in a line of people is you shake hands and you bow. Because you are showing you're the queen and I'm just a commoner. There is this idea of you're, you're, you're better than me. And that's what bowing communicates. So, you know, I'm, I'm giving honor to you. God says that the proper response to the person of Christ after this great sacrifice that he made just in coming to earth and in dying for us, the proper response is to bow the knee. In the time in which the Bible was written, it was the absolute definition of showing humility in front of somebody that was superior. And so what does it mean to bow the knee to Christ? Well, I, I think this verse would summarize it. If you love me, keep my commandments. If Jesus is the superior person to us, by virtue of his divine nature, by virtue of his great sacrifice that brought us salvation. If that's true, then we owe him obedience. And what is that obedience? That obedience comes in two forms. Number one, to believe that he was and is the Son of God who died for our sins. And number two, to follow Christ as Lord which means that we walk in our life trying to say, I will live the way Christ has told me to live. One of the things that I love 
as a child that I loved about Christmas every year was the Charlie Brown Christmas special on TV. Now, I'm so old, and I know you young people won't be able to understand this, but I'm so old that DVDs had not been invented when I was a child. Not only DVDs, but can you remember those archaic things called video cassettes? Oh, we were so excited when those came along. Those hadn't been invented. Um, My family was too poor to buy cable TV, but even if they had bought cable TV, it wasn't interactive. You couldn't get on-demand programming. And so once a year, the Charlie Brown Christmas special was on TV once. Oh, man, I couldn't wait till next year when it would be on again. I love that show. What a great thing. It's a great story. And it was great because it ended with Charlie Brown so frustrated saying, will somebody please tell me the real meaning of Christmas? And Linus walks to center stage and says, sure, Charlie Brown, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about. And he quotes Luke chapter 2, part of Luke chapter 2. Well, I want to say today that Christmas is about more than just Luke chapter 2, the first handful of verses. It's also about what happened before Christ came. It's about more than the birth of our Savior. It's about the sacrifice he made before he was born. The sacrifice of leaving the magnificence of heaven to come into our world and going all the way to dying for us. I can't think of anything more appropriate than to be in a place of worship on Christmas Day and to be remembering Christ and thinking about Him and honoring Him for His sacrifice. I am not worthy the least of His favor, but Jesus left heaven for me. The Word became flesh and He died as my Savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy, this dull tongue repeats it. I am not worthy, this heart gladly beats it. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy, what love, and what grace. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. I didn't deserve it. None of us do. But we thank you. Help us to bow the knee to you. Father, if there's somebody here who's never bowed the knee to Christ in salvation if they've never believed in him the first time help them to do that to bow that knee today and for those of us who have believed in him help us to bow the knee every day all day to just live our life for him because he gave his life for us thank you for this day thank you for this christmas season may you be honored with our worship and with all of our lives I pray in Christ's name, amen. We're going to